Episode 8. People's Songs. The Rise and Rise of Henry Wallace. Guthrie saw Roosevelt's legacy in the array of popular front-style bodies set up to challenge the Truman administration's increasingly interventionist response to perceived Soviet threats across the world and in America's own backyard. Americans for Democratic Action was a late entry into the field. Boasting the former First Lady as a member and retaining close links to the Democratic Party, the ADA was a powerful counterweight to the much more left-wing progressive citizens of America. The PCA's criticism of Truman was uninhibited by any residual party allegiance or refusal to countenance the communist point of view. It was formed in 1947 from a merger of the National Citizens Political Action Committee and the better-known Independent Citizens Committee for the Arts, Scientists and Professions. The ICCASP's high-profile supporters in New York and Hollywood swiftly disassociated themselves from their new home in the Progressive Citizens of America, once allegations of communist infiltration became more vociferous. In the immediate post-war years, Woody Guthrie's warm regard for the Roosevelts owed much to Eleanor's continued immersion in public life, not least her chairmanship of the United Nations Commission on Human Rights and their prominence in Americans for Democratic Action. Americans for Democratic Action was established in January 1947 to help realise the ideals of the UN and, in its own words, to keep the New Deal dream, its vision and its values of an America that works fairly for all, alive for generations to come. Woody, like most acolytes of progressive citizens for America, failed to note the new body's formal denunciation of communism and its status as a progressive force firmly rooted within the broad coalition that constituted FDR's political legacy. Eleanor Roosevelt's presence in the ADA ensured its unequivocal allegiance to the Democratic Party. Henry Wallace had served throughout Roosevelt's first two administrations as Secretary of Agriculture, a post held by his father ten years before. His term in office was marked by controversy, albeit largely confined to the corridors of power. Never having stood for office, there was a certain naivety and innocence when confronted with the harsh reality of party politics. Wallace was a charming, good-looking and intelligent Midwesterner liked by both Franklin and Eleanor. They indulged and even encouraged his interest in Eastern mysticism. This unique claim to expertise in both agronomy and the occult was derided by Wallace's critics in the Republican and the Democratic parties, all of whom considered him dangerously liberal in his thinking. Republicans deemed him a traitor, while Democrats asked why he had served in the administration for three years before finally switching sides. Wallace was therefore deeply unpopular with the Democratic Party machine, and his nomination as vice president in 1940 was solely because FDR overrode all objections. As an experienced administrator, Wallace enjoyed a significant range of responsibilities for the nascent war economy before and after Pearl Harbor. Turf wars with the Commerce Department saw the VPs dealing with Conservative Democrats deteriorate to the point where Roosevelt felt it expedient to redefine Wallace's role within the administration. No longer exercising executive power, Wallace henceforth fulfilled the vice president's traditional role as an ambassador. To his credit, a tour of South America saw several governments declare war on the Axis. Later, however, he participated without protest in a strictly orchestrated tour of the Gulag Archipelago, returning home to restate the shared values of the United States and the Soviet Union. Kalima's labour camps were compared with those of the New Deal, and it would be another ten years before Wallace finally admitted that the well-fed prisoners he met were in fact disguised guards. While finding favour with Stalin, Wallace had previously enraged Winston Churchill, 
in May 1942 with the Japanese at the gates of India, a much publicised address to the New York's Free World Association had welcomed the century of the common man, free from domestic exploitation and colonial oppression. By 1944, the vice president was seen as an electoral liability and he was dropped from the ticket in favour of Harry Truman. To his opponent's chagrin, Wallace was nominated as Secretary of Commerce in the new administration. In the Senate, Conservatives on both sides of the aisle sought to prevent his confirmation, or at the very least, curb his powers. Wallace was confirmed and his department left intact, but many in Congress were appalled by his call for a generous minimum wage and for aggressive interventionism should the return of peace trigger a slump in the economy. As far as Wallace was concerned, the war was merely an interruption in the federal government's pursuit of an economic prosperity and a fairer and more equitable society. If the war effort had actually aided the pursuit of these admirable goals, then the argument for top-down control and direction in peacetime was that much greater. In the year after Roosevelt died, Henry Wallace became closely associated with those left-leaning organisations insistent that Truman had turned his back on New Deal values. Increasingly remote from White House thinking, the Commons Secretary was forced to resign in early autumn 1946 after publicly urging an emollient policy of peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union. On 12th September, Wallace addressed the mass meeting of the Independent Citizens Committee for the Arts, Sciences and Professions in Madison Square Garden. Unwisely, he revealed the content of a letter written to Truman on the 23rd of July in which Wallace questioned the administration's response to the long telegram sent five months earlier by George Kennan, charge d'affaires in Moscow. The diplomat's 5,000-word dispatch to Secretary of State James Burns is now seen as a key moment in America recognising the reality of a Soviet threat. Kennan portrayed that threat as rooted in a potent combination of revolutionary ideology and Stalin's keen sense of insecurity. Returning to Washington, Kennan urged the USA to take the lead in forging a global network of security arrangements intended to contain Soviet ambitions, most especially in Central and Western Europe. His influential article for the July 1946 issue of Foreign Affairs, written under the pseudonym X, projected a new world order, which Wallace found an anathema. Wallace's indiscreet speech to the ICCASP in September 46 had made public a fundamental belief that Kennan and his admirers in and around the White House, notably the veteran Navy Secretary James Forrestal, had completely misread Soviet intentions. Yes, Stalin felt insecure, but given the regime's experience after 1917 and June 1941, this was wholly understandable. Thus the United States and its allies should be accommodating, not threatening. Wallace's analysis ran counter to the strategic thinking and policy development as they unfolded across the winter and spring of 1946-7, particularly after the former Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, succeeded James Burns at the State Department in April 1947. The former Commerce Secretary had minimal influence inside both government and party, but for a long time refused to recognise his much-diminished position. Throughout 1946, Eleanor Roosevelt remained an admirer of Henry Wallace, defending his actions and ideas at length in My Day, her daily column. She was insistent that Wallace did not constitute the continuance of FDR's foreign policy and maintained her belief that he didn't think so either. Even when her old friend criticised the offer of martial aid while visiting Paris and London, Eleanor took a sharp intake of breath but refused to write him off. Writing in The New Republic, of which he became editor in October 46. Wallace courted Eleanor Roosevelt, insisting that her worldview and his were compatible and that their differences could easily be resolved. 
Yet by the spring of 1947, editorial content increasingly signalled the parting of the waves. Not that Wallace was ready to break with the Democratic Party, however fierce his criticism of the State Department and the White House. Henry Wallace's admirers often failed to appreciate that he was quietly ambitious, refusing to acknowledge just how unpopular he was on Capitol Refusing to acknowledge just how unpopular he was on Capitol Hill, Wallace remained loyal to the Democratic Party for a further 15 months after his dismissal as Commerce Secretary. Thus, he dismissed even louder calls on the left for a third presidential candidate and insisted that a reassertion of Roosevelt liberalism would reverse the Republican success in the 1946 midterm elections. In Wallace's opinion, only a progressive Democratic Party could regain control of Congress. Reviving the best of the New Deal would see the party reclaim its lost leader's moral compass. Had he still been alive, FDR would no doubt have asked, what moral compass? Here, however, was a powerful myth for disillusioned progressives to cling to. If anything, the myth was strengthened by the Democrats' disastrous showings in November 1946, when they lost control of both the Senate and the House of Representatives. The Republicans' landslide victory was seen by Wallace and his allies as vindicating their pre-election call for a more radical agenda. The onset of the Cold War strained the party loyalty of leftist Democrats to near breaking point. On the 12th of March 1947, at the height of the Greek Civil War, President Truman famously informed Congress that it must be the policy of the United States to support free people who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or outside pressures. That pledge was swiftly turned into material and military support. The Truman Doctrine, followed soon after by the Marshall Plan, signalled a new Atlantic alliance, formalised two years later in the establishment of NATO. Truman's commitment to Greece and Turkey and America's readiness to join West European allies in countering a perceived Soviet threat strengthened his standing in the country. A more hardline foreign policy helped Truman secure a surprise victory in the 1948 presidential elections, as did a reorientation of the administration's domestic agenda to head off Republican claims that the Democratic Party was soft on communism. Woody Guthrie was not alone in lamenting the president's readiness to distance himself from his party's liberal wing, still committed to keeping the New Deal flame alive. Truman has proved to me that he don't like organised labour, don't like the Communist Party and don't like the human race. Like Henry Wallace... Guthrie was appalled by the Truman Doctrine, championing the Communists in the Greek Civil War and blaming Churchill for the Allies siding with the monarchists after German forces abandoned Athens in autumn 1944. Although Winston Churchill was no longer in power, in Guthrie's eyes he remained the embodiment of British imperialism, witness his efforts to delay Indian independence. Truman's presumed endorsement of Churchill's Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri on the 5th of March 46 was seen to illustrate how far the president had drifted from his predecessor's fundamentally anti-colonial posture. An incipient Red Scare saw members of the House Committee on American Activities, both Republican and Democrat, compete to prove who was the most patriotic. Even Henry Wallace was threatened with a subpoena. In 1947, HUAC's aggressive pursuit of alleged communists in Hollywood fueled a climate of fear amongst artists active in left-wing politics on both sides of the country. The covert and increasingly open harassment of communists, real or imagined, the courting of a disgruntled but loyal labour movement and a crude but effective appeal to patriotism together served to divide progressive opinion across the United States. A climate of fear and suspicion threatened the already threadbare relationship between leftist artists and intellectuals and the Congress of Industrial Organisations, the more militant of America's two trade union federations. 
the CIO's affiliates have broken away from the Federation of American Labour at the height of the Depression. Ironically, the more remote the resurrection of whatever mythical values FDR was seen to embody, the deeper the sense of loss, as articulated by People's Songs Inc, founded in Greenwich Village on New Year's Eve 1945, to create, promote and distribute songs of labour and the American people. Here was a realisation of Pete Seeger's ambition to build on the experience of the Almanac singers and to create a coalition of artists and activists eager to establish American folk music as a viable and vital element within the life of the nation. By establishing a close-knit network of performers, organisers, agents, writers and promoters, starting in New York and then spreading out from state to state, folk music could gain in credibility and be commercially viable. A weekly newsletter, a quarterly bulletin and an annual convention meant friends and fans far from the eastern seaboard could feel part of a nationwide movement intended to promote the people's music and the people's politics. Evidence of this was the early establishment of a People's Song satellite on the West Coast, its founders as intent on cultivating trade union connections as Seeger and his allies back east. In promoting an unashamedly political agenda, People's Song's elected president was supported by Lee Hayes, Alan Lomax and an army of fellow travelling folkies, all white other than Josh White and an already ailing Leadbelly. They all signed up to an agency, People's Artists, and for the first year enjoyed multiple bookings on the back of a sharp deterioration in industrial relations as the war economy wound down. People's Songs was a regular presence at trade union rallies until relations soured and shop floor suspicion of commie sympathisers deepened. Committed to the cause, but increasingly erratic in his behaviour, was Woody Guthrie, delighted by a hardline takeover of the communist leadership, but dismayed by the CIO's purge of party activists. Guthrie labelled People's Songs the best-sounding democracy I've heard so far. But more and more, he resented Seeger's efforts to generate audience participation, especially when the song being sung was his own. This Land is Your Land was now welcomed by every audience as, in Dorian Linsky's words, a bona fide people's song. Woody wasn't alone in questioning the policy of encouraging all comers to play, however primitive their skills. Alan Lomax was similarly sceptical, but inclusivity prevailed. A combination of undiagnosed illness and hard drinking affected Guthrie's performances, which on a good night were self-indulgent and on a bad night downright offensive. Given his reputation, knowledgeable audiences were forgiving, but too often his combination of rambling anecdote, casual insult and reworked favourites proved damaging to people's songs' image and reputation. Seeger, Lee Hayes and Lomax were appalled by the death of four-year-old Cathy Guthrie in a fire at 3520 Mermaid Avenue. Yet at the same time, they were quietly relieved when a grieving Marjorie agreed her husband should accept an invitation to play in Spokane and then head west, before making his way home in time for the birth of their second child. The People's Songs organisers in Los Angeles had no idea what to expect when Woody rolled into town, his arrival coinciding with that of HUAC's private investigators, digging the dirt on Hollywood Reds. Guthrie dismissed their significance, given that, as far back as 1941, the House Committee had named him a seditious communist. Most left-wing movie makers in LA were less gung-ho, while quietly confident that the planned hearings in Washington would not be taken seriously by the big studio bosses. This, of course, was a huge miscalculation. By the time those hearings commenced in October 1947, Guthrie was back in Brooklyn once more, flying the red flag for people's songs. 
Had Seeger and Hayes attended a House committee sitting four months earlier, they would have been bemused to learn that Peoplesong's success in subverting the nation's youth was largely attributable to its least reliable director. Woody Guthrie's influence extended to his intermittent musings in the people's world and his presence on supposedly pro-communist albums released by Keynote Records. In Woody Guthrie, American Radical, Will Kaufman identified the real victim of the House Committee's July hearings as Hans Eisler, by now a Hollywood composer. Back in 1940, Eisler had contributed to six songs for democracy, the keynote album so admired by Eleanor Roosevelt. Despite a high-profile campaign organised by fellow composers Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein, Eisler found himself on a Hollywood blacklist. He was deported in March 1948. Although an Austrian, Eisler settled in East Germany, where, despite composing the anthem for the German Democratic Republic, he soon fell foul of the fledgling regime. His treatment in the GDR scarcely differed from that meted out to him by the American authorities once HUAC had declared him an agent of communist subversion. As Kaufman pointed out, the words of Eisler on the go, to which Wilco and Billy Bragg added music 50 years later, signal how much Guthrie feared a subpoena to appear before the House Committee. This was a body capable of shredding a simple musician's reputation while ignoring the real danger to national security, namely the president. Eisler hymn write music, Eisler hymn teach school. Truman hymn don't play so good and I don't know what I'll do. From James Madison to Sinclair Lewis, writers had warned that an America under threat might one day embrace tyranny by dismissing the fundamental principles of liberty on which the nation was founded as in the adage favoured by Trump's critics that fascism will come to the USA wrapped in the flag and waving a cross. Guthrie saw this scenario as a very real prospect, unless those presently in power made way for a new and genuinely progressive leadership. The 1948 presidential election was a final opportunity for the people to reassert those values synonymous with the idealised, if not the real, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. People's Songs, as a flawed movement for mobilising the American working class, was attributable in part to chaotic organisation outside of California, scant sustained enthusiasm among the unionised labour it eulogised, and close association with communist front organisations at a time when fears of domestic subversion invariably trumped good intentions. In its first year, the network went a long way to realising the aims of the ambitious manifesto drafted by Seeger for the first issue of the Quarterly Bulletin. Directors and staff, working out of a tiny office in Times Square, were to some extent overwhelmed by the range of activities taking place under the People's Song umbrella. Yet because no symbiotic and lasting relationship was established with the trade unions or with the Communist Party, the long-term survival of People's Songs became ever more uncertain. The attacks on its principal personalities, all assumed to be car-carrying communists, were relentless and bound to inflict psychological damage on even the strongest personality. The most visible legacy of People's Songs was its publications, principally Sing Out magazine, and its booking agency. Guthrie's general disillusion with the condition of America was inseparable from his disillusion with People's Songs. One particular grievance was the way in which artists like Josh White and Burl Ives had sold out and secured commercial success on the back of People's Artists' success in finding them work. However, People's Song's unhappy experience in the late 1940s should not obscure a high point in its history. The movement's enthusiastic and wholehearted support for Henry Wallace's challenge to the president and his Republican opponent in the 1948 election. Throughout the summer and autumn of 1947, Wallace addressed numerous well-attended rallies on the eastern seaboard and carried his de facto campaign deep into the south. For all the cheering crowds, a lingering delusion 
that, faced with the prospect of defeat, the Democrats might dump Truman and seek a more radical alternative, finally died. Despite the reality check, Wallace now came to believe that a third candidate just might triumph in the Electoral College. He would contest the 1948 presidential election.